0: Hey Craig. hey, Craig. Okay, take two. Hello there. Welcome to the show. Um, it's been a pretty good run of having guests on my show, so I can figured I might as well not stop. So today I have Nick Dabbs and Dylan Reimer. Guys, how's it going? Hello. Going well, Hayden. How you doing? Doing well. So we r- woke up at the crack of dawn in order to accommodate for Dylan's very busy schedule. I actually woke up earlier for this than I did to do the interview of Harrison, who was in Korea at the time. This is very special. Oh, wow. This is a new Hello There record. Yes, definitely. Um, But today, we decided that we were going to talk about Lord of the Rings, and instead of being pansies and talking about the Lord of the Rings like everyone does, we are going to talk about some of the stuff from the appendix in the back of Return of the King. So, I thought I'd give like a brief overview of uh, the history leading up to where we're talking about. So, we're going to be talking about um, the Numenorians and the Numenorians are... Basically, the heirs of Ilsador, who Ilsador was the one who cut the ring off of Sauron, and and they lead up to the king, uh, Aragorn, in the future, like when we know um, Lord of the Rings to be. Before the Third Age, I found a lot of really interesting stuff about Numenor. So They were realm of men. They weren't elves. Now, at that time, I think they were closer to the Dunedain, as in they had more power and they lived longer. At one point in the Second Age, Sauron is sort of building up his army, and he decides that he. Wants to go conquer the Westlands, which the Westlands is sort of uh, like we think of the Grey Havens where the elves go. And um, the power of the Numenoreans was so great that they actually killed Sauron, and they say that his body was thrown into the abyss, and so Sauron actually dies, but his spirit fled, and he goes back to Mordor. And so this is just in the Second Age. This is before the Third Age even starts. And um, so because of that, that's why Sauron has such a hard time, like manifesting a body without the Ring of Power. Um, after the Second Age, um, they sort of settled in what we know as the Shire area. So I think it's called like Erador is that area. And it during that time and starting into the Third Age, it was divided into three different realms. And um, this appendix that we're talking about, they sort of just discuss the history of the kings leading up to the Dunedain and then leading up to um, Aragorn and his lineage. Dylan, had you ever read this before we started talking about it? No, this is my first time. And what did you think of it?
1: I thought it was cool how the uh, the Palantiri, you know, the seven... Yeah, um, seeing stones. stones. Right, right. I thought it was cool like how they used that for um, battle strategy, sort of. Just spying all over the Middle Earth, as they would call it. I thought it was also cool how they spoke about the abilities of the witch king. And basically they they thought that he could create frost or something about freezing stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, which reminded me of uh, back whenever the fellowship is going over the Misty Mountains. And I believe in the book, it doesn't really connect that to uh, Saruman. It just says there's a fell voice in the air. Oh, so see, I don't remember that. It makes you wonder, yeah. So like, it makes you wonder, like, was that actually Saruman or was that the Witch King that was speaking over the weather? But that's left field.
0: Now, the Witch King is the king of the Nazgul, correct? Yes. Okay. And Nick, I know you did extensive, extensive research, pouring over the manuscripts. Like you were like Gandalf, going into Minas Tirith to the deep libraries, and you were reading all about this. Tell me what you thought about this.
2: I Actually, I quit my job a month in advance of this podcast to make sure I could fully dedicate my life to its research. Um, I've, I've only read the appendices once, I think, and it was a long time ago, but I remember really liking them, and I remember different details sticking out in my mind, but I totally forgot a lot of the stuff that was in this one. Um, so jam-packed. And it's interesting, I think one of the things that struck me was, like, this is really important information. Because, like, Aragorn's lineage and descendancy is such a feature of the three books and then the three movies, too. And there's plenty of allusions to a lot of this stuff or the feeling that a lot of these events generate for his people. I think think it would have been better served to go into some of this detail, actually, in the books. Because it really... I don't know, it really highlights the fact that he is this, like, long-awaited king and that his people were, were driven into obscurity and then pretty much all but wiped out. Like, the true lineage um, of the Numenorians was, like, just the scattered remnant just kind of playing in the woods because of the efforts of the Witch King in the north. Like, they were on the brink. And then from that, Aragorn still survives, subsists, and then ultimately reclaims like the super awesome power and glory that they, they used to have. Which is so cool. And one of the main like threads of the of Lord of the Rings. And so to have all the stuff in the appendix is cool, but it's also like, man, I wish he would have worked some of that into I don't know, the main story at certain points. Because it, it makes his it makes Aragorn's arc that much that much cooler
0: definitely i totally agree and dylan um this is one of the things that i thought while i was reading it and i just want to see what you think about this when i was reading the appendix it was sort of interesting to connect it towards like what we know from like the original trilogy and so did you kind of get that vibe as you're reading it it's like oh i kind of know this or oh this like kind of sounds familiar anything like that
1: yeah so w- one thing that i noticed and kind of like added context to the original story was how the Witch King had this almost like this personal vendetta to take out um, all of Aragorn's lineage. So like whenever, anytime Aragorn faces the Witch King, whether it be on Weathertop or anywhere else that we're not told about, this is really a longstanding rivalry, you know, kind of like Azog, the, the Defiler, and the Dwarves. Even though Aragorn's a fictional character, I I applaud him for any time he's ever had to take on um, any of the nine ring rays because this is like, hey, we're here to kill you. We fought your dad, your grandfather, and everyone else. Your great-great-grandfather. Yeah, yeah. we're probably thousands of years old and we're here to kill you, too. (laughs) I think what's so cool
2: about that is you, like, you can't help but imagine
1: that the Witch King is
2: so motivated to totally exterminate his people because he fears them. Yeah. He's like, yeah, these guys are freaking, freaking trouble. We need to get them off the map. And that's, like, maybe what's driving his diligence towards extermination, which just makes Aragorn and his people that much cooler.
0: Well, also, what's funny is that The Dúnedain are something that you kind of know about, but you don't really know why they're special. So in, I think it's in the Two Towers, um, he talks about how at one point he was like on a campaign, Aragorn was on a campaign with uh, Ymir, is that correct? I think so. I'll have to add an addendum here. It was Theoden, not Ymir. And so... Eomer's like 70 at this point and Eowyn is talking to Aragorn and she sort of realizes how old he is, but he looks like he's middle-aged or, you know, a little younger than that and so we know about these these dunedain but we don't know like what they are and when you go back and you read this appendix in the, the even just in the second age which i didn't even read too much about that but the power of the numenorians and the power of these men was so great that they his ancestors fought and killed sauron back before you know we ever hear about it
2: but But there was also definitely a thread of their Second Age history that is, like, far less glamorous. Like, I mean, Numenor was destroyed because they had become so corrupted. And Sauron had, like, deceived them and convinced them to, like, break the orders that were put on them to, like, never leave the island. And so part of their legacy is also one of, like, moral bankruptcy and corruption. Like, they kind of gave in to pride and all these things except for the specific group of Numenoreans from which Aragorn descends. Like Elendil and his people or some of like the righteous of Numenor and they fled all of that destruction. And then it's from that seed that Aragorn comes and continues like that thread of the Numenorean heritage that is actually like morally upright and seeking to restore it to its full glory, Both both like in military might and grandeur, but also being like just an upright people, which is just so cool because like, it's almost like they're wondering and getting smashed by the witch king is sort of like a divine judgment, like a continuation of like, yeah, you guys, this is what you deserve because you guys brought this on due to your pride and all various forms of corruption. Um, but then Aragorn is able to get around that or rise above that and, and restore them to their former glory which is just again so cool like
0: yeah and that's why i do think that reading through these appendix because i've never read them before and then when i was talking to you guys about you know doing an episode on this i started reading it and i was like man this is super interesting like i want to read a whole book on
2: this yeah yeah i feel like he's got a knack for just like he'll just include like these random sentences out of nowhere that have ridiculous implications. Like you'll just be reading like a normal paragraph and then read just some sentence where it's like, what it's like a description of a power or something that totally changes your understanding of how things work. (laughs) And then you will just move on. I
1: (laughs) think his ability to create this history and this backstory for anyone and everyone all the way down to every tree in the book. um, Every tree. (laughs) Like I, I think that history kind of convinces you that this is this is like a non-fictional work, you know, and like we're reading about yeah, something that happened totally a long time ago. that happened a long time ago. That's so true. Yeah, like I still have to convince myself sometimes that I'm not going to meet these characters, you know, <laughs> when I die or something.
0: And I think that uh, kind of going back to what you were saying, Nick, um, and I guess this ties into what both of you guys were saying, is that with the history when you read Fellowship of the Ring, you know, they see Weathertop as they're traveling and they sort of offhandedly mention it. And so I kind of put this quote in our little Google Doc and I found this, you know, interesting with the context of reading this appendix and sort of understanding it a little bit more. But um, the four hobbits, Merry Pippin, Sam and Frodo, are traveling with Strider at the time. They don't know he's Aragorn yet. Um they're traveling with him to try to get to Rivendell, and they see Weathertop, and Aragorn says, um, the men of the West did not live here, though they're in their latter days, they defended the hills for a while against the evil that came out of Angmar. Now, I, I had no idea like what the crap he was talking about at this point. Um, and then he says, the path was made to serve the forts along the walls, but long before in the days of the Northern Kingdom, they built a great watchtower on Weathertop, Amun Sul, they called it. It was burned and broken, and nothing remained of it now but a tumbled ring, like a rough crown on the old hill's head. Yet once it was tall and fair. It is told Elendil stood there watching for the coming of Gilgad out of the west in the days of the last alliance. And just the amount of things in that one paragraph is the, almost the entire history of the Numenorean kings in the Third Age.
1: Yeah, and that's yeah. that's Ellen Deal as in the light of Ellen Deal, you know, that that Fredo and Sam carry. Okay. That's
0: cool. I didn't know that.
1: Yep, same person. So I don't know if Ellen Deal used that concoction whenever watching um for the coming of um Gilgalad or where that came from, so it raises more questions.
2: Even though there's not that explicit detail of the history of a monsoon in the books, you still totally feel that, like it's very palpable, um, that it's just a really, really important place, and is charged with with meaning. And then it's cool to just get that some of that filled in in the appendix. And like the offhand mention of the palantir. Yeah, <laughs> how that was like the, the northern one was kept there or something.
0: Yeah, it's like that's a huge
1: deal. Totally. Yeah, because there were only seven.
2: Mm-hmm. It also like, I don't know, there's something to the poetic significance maybe of like the Nazgul being there in the fellowship and like ultimately desecrating it. Like this used to be a bastion and watchtower against these people and like what the what they stood for and just evil in general and then they just are able to so easily waltz up and then, you know, stab, straight up stab somebody there. It's like the ultimate desecration of what the that place was meant for.
0: But it's also interesting, though, and I put this quote in there is when they're also traveling towards Weathertop. Uh, Sam says, what is that light? He said to Strider, who had risen and was standing, gazing ahead into the night. I do not know," Strider answered. "It is too distant to make out. It is like lightning that leaps from the hilltops, and that is when Gandalf battles some of the Nazgul on Weathertop. And so oh, it's like this has happened before. Yeah, yeah, uh huh. So it's like this is this this area this this sul has so much significance even so far in the future when it isn't even a a watchtower. It, you know, it is nothing. It
1: is a ruin. Right, and it could have had a, the potential to become even a major fortress of um, the enemy, because that's what they did with uh, Minas Morgul, because it used to be a fortress yeah, of Yes, so they Borg. took it over.
0: And we can kind of move on um, to, like, away from uh, Weathertop, but what was interesting, then we kind of mentioned it, is that, that throughout the Third Age, which the books end around, I think, 3021, and so the Third Age starts at 1. 1- it won, right. I think it restarts when you get to a new age the, the year starts So it's been 3,000 years And throughout the Third Age There's this constant push and pull Of the Numenorean kings Versus the Witch King of Angmar And what's interesting is that like These these Numenorean kings They have longer lives Like They don't live 100 years They might live 150 or 170 years But they're all fighting To some extent the same enemy Which is the, the Nazgul king
1: Right, right. It's the same, the same evil from generation to generation, you know, just like how they have to deal with having the one ring, you know, of a
2: Mm-hmm. He might as well be like their Sauron. Like,
0: yeah, <laughs> for the northern
2: part of the map, he represents just the ultimate undying evil.
0: And we're talking thousands of years, generation, like a generational battle. And if you go through, they have the um, lineage where they break down each king and each son. And I have a few in here and a few stories. Um, so back in fourteen oh nine, which I always find it funny when I'm reading like dates that could be in our world, and I see like in fourteen oh nine, like just like, yeah, right around when you know, like right before Columbus was going to sail the ocean blue. Um, but they say that a great army came from Angmar, and they surrounded Weathertop, and the Dunedain were defeated, and the tower was raised or destroyed, um, but the Planeteer was saved, and they carried it, like, they carried it away, and they took it away. And this was 1,500 years before the start of The Lord of the Rings.
2: Yeah. Yep. And that's just, I think that's one of the things that he just totally nails, Tolkien, is just the, like lived in of the world and especially of like even obscure parts of the world because like this whole area does not feature that prominently in the books or the movies yeah. like the whole point so of this is like we're journeying from the north to the south so like physically we're just not there and like any parts you get of that are by illusion or story or whatever which is you still get some of that but like <laughs> it's a real place tons of real and really important things happen there And that's all just because he wanted to fully develop, like, the entire world.
0: (laughs) And I think that's what he does better than a lot of modern-day fantasy authors. And by modern-day, I mean, like, from the 70s up. Obviously, there are good examples. But I think that Tolkien, his, his world
2: was fleshed out from the beginning. And that's just someone who loves to do that. Like, the only way that you as an author are going to spend... I don't know how many countless hours providing that kind of background detail is if you just genuinely love creating like a full and fully realized world. Because if it doesn't even feature that prominently in your story compared to other places and events, there's no need artistically to do it other than just like, I freaking love (laughs) just mapping this all out. And clearly he did
0: but I could totally see that. I could. I. I feel like I could do that. Maybe not just as immediately, but
2: just world builder. Just Hayden Scheffler,
0: world builder. You, you'll be the next Tolkien. Nah, I'd have to revolutionize. See, the problem with that is that I have to be a good writer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the problem is the requirement of being a good writer.
0: Yeah, I could maybe come up with some cool stuff, but the like writing it out that might be rough. Uh, how many times have you read the books, Dylan? Basically. Twice, I want to say. Okay. Um, Because one of the things I always forget about until I reread them is the whole section about uh, the four hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Merry Pippin, traveling to Bree. It's a long extended part of the first book. Um, But the Barrow Downs is one of those places that I always sort of forget about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's amazing Um, you know, we just kind of glance over that in the, in the movies.
0: Yeah. It's not even really mentioned in the movies at all. They don't get their weapons from the Barrow Downs in the movies. Aragorn just gives them their weapons when they get to Weathertop.
2: Right. In the, in the really old, I think it was a PlayStation two game, the fellowship of the ring, which is two towers and return of the King games were based on the movies, but this one was based on the book. Hilariously. Oh, I think I think there was a section where you actually went to the Barrow Downs. And you went to the Old Forest and you, and you did all the stuff. I think you even met with Tom. I think you did like all the stuff pre-breed that you don't really see in the movie. And it was so hilarious because like there would just be these little ghosts like wandering around that you would just cut with a sword somehow. He, and collect like him. flowers
1: from them. Yeah, it was really bizarre. It's <laughs> I'd like to see but what that Tom was, looked like.
2: I, that part in the
1: books is what would you say, Dylan? Yeah, I was gonna say I like. I'd, I'd like to see how Tom looked on the PS2. <laughs> yeah,
2: a, a fully rendered Sony Tom Bombadil. I love. I love the barrow down part in the book, and pretty much that whole like extended section before Bree, just because it's like the tone is like really freaky, and I feel like that comes across a little bit in the movie, just with all the, like, Nazgul chasing stuff. But in the book, it's more of just, like, the creepiness and bizarreness of their early journey is more a function of, like, the places they're going rather than, like, the Nazgul.
0: Yeah. They're, like, traveling to these eerie places. Like, the old woods is is where the um, female Ents are. Like, that's the theory, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And so it's like they travel through these old woods and there's this feeling of we shouldn't be here.
1: Yeah, and even though Tolkien hated allegory, like you could kind of trace all this back to like, yeah, there is this greater evil in the world, but so much of your journey just has to do with overcoming yourself, you know?
0: hmm and that's what sort of... I think the movie really misses out on. I just watched Fellowship of the Rings. It was funny because I watched, um, was it Infinity War? And I was just like super frustrated about all the dumb things in that movie. And I do actually like that movie. But I, I was just, I need to watch a good movie. And I went and watched Fellowship of the Rings. And it's, you know... We need to do a whole another episode just on one of the movies. And then we could do it on The Hobbit. That that should be good. We should have a Hobbit watching marathon. It could be like mystery science theater where we watch The Hobbit and talk about it.
1: Yeah, we could we could totally do that. And it's funny you mentioned that about um Infinity War because I've kind of had this feeling that like anytime I visit um Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings or basically anything from christopher nolan and then try to go back to marvel it's very frustrating yeah
2: <laughs> one thing i will say with that which is kind of connected to just talking about like some of these events that happen really early in fellowship i think one of the key aspects that make those movies so good are the hard decisions that they made to to cut so many things out it's like you know that you know that to have a successful adaptation anytime book to movie like you have to cut a ton of stuff And that was going to be the case here. And like, as much as I love some of that early fellowship travel log stuff, it's like, that was a great candidate of, of scenes to go. And like, they made a great choice of when to, how to cut that up and get, get them to breathe and keep everything moving forward. I think in general, their ability to, they just had like a sixth sense for what was appropriate to leave behind and like leave. Unadapted, which still. You know, maintain the integrity of the movie without tying it down too much, which I think some other
1: adaptations really struggle with. Right? No, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and it's definitely for the better that we don't have certain characters like Tom Bombadil. Like, I mean, it would have been kind of cool to see how they did that, but I think it would have been a letdown ultimately because people would have been left with, wait, what? What the heck was that chapter about?
0: And it's like you would put. Tom Bombadil and sort of in character like someone would have to play him and it's like that's like getting someone to play
2: Jesus right
1: yeah it'll never be right
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think also like I think in Lord of the Rings one of the threads you have in the books is the thread that this is kind of a children's book and I think Tom Bombadil's character reflects that thread and I think when they made the movie they made a conscious decision where any any child's book element would not make it into the movie it's like this they were like we're not making a a children's movie tom bombadil and other related things are going to be out there there would be too too much of a tonal clash for the kind of adaptation they wanted to do like if you have like the lord of the rings as we know it and then pop in like dancing tom bombadil it just it doesn't make sense for the movie they were making
0: well you know that Tolkien wrote The Hobbit first, obviously, and he never wrote The Hobbit meaning it to be a prequel. Like, it was just supposed to be a story. Yes. And then he started Lord of the Rings, and at some point during the Lord of the Rings, he realized that he wasn't writing a children's book anymore. And so there is an actual shift. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, I think it's right around when they get to Rivendell. Um, And so there is a conscious decision by Tolkien to, like, switch from that sort of uh, childlike wonder to a more serious more historical story. Um, so it is interesting that you bring that up. But what's what's funny
2: is that 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 works perfectly thematically because there's this whole feeling of like they're and we're totally <laughs> on a tangent from the appendices but this is interesting. That I think that works perfectly thematically with the story because it's like they get to they get to Rivendell. And then there's a feeling amongst the Hobbits of like, oh, we did it. This is fun. Now we can go back. But it's like, oh, no, that was like the prologue, like the actual serious journey is about to begin. And so that's kind of cool that there's an inbuilt tonal shift at that point.
1: Right. And up until that point, you know, they they went from, you know, we're we're on an adventure to now we're going to change the world. And go on what's seemingly a suicide mission. Right.
0: So kind of going back to some of the appendices, but connecting it with what we're talking about, um, the discussion around the Barrow Downs, the, the Dune Danes sort of held the Barrow Downs with sort of reverence um, because of the, I think their forefathers like lived there or, or, or that's where they were uh, laid to rest. Um, and I think some of that happened before the, the Third Age. So this, I mean, the Barrow Downs are ancient. Um, But what I found interesting in the appendix was that so in 1670, in the third age of Middle Earth, um, a plague came down and killed most of the people that lived in uh, Cardolan, which was one of the areas of Eridor, which is sort of around where the Shire is. Um, and it would—they say—at this time, evil spirits came and dwelt in these mounds. So when uh, Frodo and Sam and them go to these, the the Barrow Downs, they are not encountering the spirits of the uh, past kings or the Numenorians. They're encountering the evil spirits from the from the the Witch King. And I find that fascinating as well, because then it becomes this place of taboo, like no one goes there. And I think Tom Bombadil kind of mentions that, where he's like, you know, you shouldn't go here or you shouldn't be here.
2: Uh uh-huh. You get the sense that it's like just this cursed land. Although they also walk out with a nice hall.
0: <laughs> but I think that's sort of like your typical D&D uh, dungeon crawl you know it's like there is all this stuff there but no one goes there because it's too dangerous so you got there. D- dungeons and dragons when you read lord of the rings you realize that it was just based around lord of the rings really <laughs> it's like aragorn is literally the ranger class like that, that it, he created the ranger class in fantasy <laughs> which is always my favorite class to play as
2: he, he just is, he is literally the prototypical Ranger. Like, if, if I just hear the word Ranger, it's just like, boom, Aragorn. But he's also, like, the first, right? Yeah.
0: Like, there is no, I mean, I guess you could maybe say Robin Hood would be similar.
2: Yeah, but he's so yeah, much yeah, cooler, cooler than Robin uh,
0: Yeah, he is so much cooler than Robin Hood. So, one of the things that we've repeatedly mentioned is the history of the or the lineage of the kings um so aragorn son of Arathorn, which A- i think aragorn it's actually aragorn the mm-hmm. second uh, which i thought i never knew that i thought that was interesting i didn't know either but um towards the end of the third age so i, I want to say this is probably around uh 2000s maybe mid to like 2500 um was when the numenorans sort of they fall away um, they, they, their civilization f- dies. Um, and so I found this quote where they say, this was the end of the Northern Kings kingdom, but the Dúnedain kept the line of Kings. Arnath, son of Arvindu, was the first chieftain of the Dúnedain. So the, the, the kingdom of the Dúnedain became, or I'm sorry, the kingdom of the Numenorians sort of became this, these wandering People, which we know as the Dunedain in the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, and then his son Arathel, was fostered in Rivendell, and so were all the chieftains after. And they kept their the heirlooms: the Ring of Barahir, I don't know what that is; um, the Shard of Narsil, which is the sword that cut off Saren's finger and cut off the Ring; the Star of Elendil, and the Scepter of Enuminas. So, just the fact that over hundreds of years they kept these heirlooms. And uh, each of the children of the of the next line was fostered at Rivendell. And that's sort of where Aragorn was. That's how he knows how to speak Elvish. That's how he kind of knows uh, Elrond and all of that. And I just find that very that lineage is super important for who Aragorn is.
1: Oh, for sure. And the elves really took it upon themselves to keep and preserve all that history. And, you know, they fought alongside Aragorn's ancestors for a long time, you know, to yeah, keep the against everybody. the night king. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You
2: know what's interesting is, is with you just, you just kind of walking through that line of events. It reminds me a lot of the Israelites. <laughs> yeah, it does. The Old Testament where yeah. it's like you have this, this nation state that is powerful and glorious and God is with them and there's favor and then they screw up. And they go into exile and are wandering a bit, which is kind of like after the fall of Numenor, the Dunedain wandering around. Yet they're still a people charged with power and like the promise of restoration and just the sense that like they're not done. Uh-huh. And then, I mean, really that that really reaffirms Aragorn is like a bit of a messiah, yes, um, definitely type, because. I mean, you even have a bit of like, okay, him being raised in Rivendell and being schooled in the history of his people, of the true history of his people and being exposed to the, all these artifacts. I think he re- wears the ring of bar here, if I remember right. Um, I think so, that's yeah. Like, that's like Jesus receiving like his formal technical Jewish training at Tabernacle, yet um, also being distinct from that. Like... Aragorn leaves Rivendell and kind of becomes this nomadic, like, tracker guy, but then is ultimately restored and restores his people. It's like, that actually
1: follows a fairly similar trajectory <laughs> as the Israelites. Yeah, and it's funny you say that he's kind of the Messiah character, because I've, I've always seen him as the Messiah character, but I never made that connection about his people being similar the Israelites. to the Jews. Yeah. Exactly. And like whenever he's mentioned in Bree, like, you know, those, those uh, rangers are dangerous folk, you know, it's like, well, there's always kind of been this hatred against the Jews, you know, for whatever reason. Well, and yeah, yeah.
2: totally. And, and there's something about like, even, you know, how Jesus in the New Testament, there's a whole big deal he makes about like the time that he will choose to reveal himself to man. And until he does so, he sort of is obscure and wants his identity to be concealed. And Aragorn is literally the exact same way. He's like, I'm called Strider. Everything is mysterious until the point in time where he like reveals his true identity and the path that he's ultimately on. I was going to say, I love how the hobbits always refer to
0: him as Strider. They never truly see him as Aragorn, like, son of Arathorn, heir of Ilsador, king of Gondor. You know, they see him as the ranger that they met in Bree.
2: Yeah. Right. It's like they can't conceive of something like
1: that. Yeah, they are, they are very simple people. And, you know, like, in The Return of the King, where I can't recall if this is actually in the book, where, you know, he says, my friends, you bow to no one. After that, he pretty much made it illegal for any large people to enter the shire again. So like he kind of wanted them to be left alone after that because he, I I would assume because he felt like they, they had to deal with the outside world enough, you know, and he wanted to grant their wishes to be kind of this isolated uh, group of people.
2: It's interesting. Just another note on the, on the Messiah thing is like, What's funny with Lord of the Rings is like you could read like a Messiah component in nearly every character. (laughs) Like like Frodo is like sort of the Messiah. Sam is like sort of Messiah-ish at times. Gandalf is absolutely Messiah-ish. Aragorn, it's like there's Messiahs running around. Maybe not Gimli. (laughs) Yeah, not Gimli. (laughs) Poor Gimli. He's a disciple.
0: He's a disciple. It's like Paul. He's always running off and doing crazy stuff. All right, so um, there's one thing I want to leave us with that we can like end the discussion with and this is just sort of kind of the tail end of this appendix but um, there were 15 chieftains before the 16th Aragorn II, son of Arathorn. So by the time the Dunedain became a wandering people to Aragorn, son of Arathorn, who became king of Gondor, there were 16 chieftains and they lived 150 to 170 years each. They, they lived for a long time. And then I'm going to, this last quote, um, it was the pride and wonder of the Northern line that through their power departed and their people dwindled through all the many generations, the succession was unbroken from father to son. Also, through the length of the lives, the Dunedain grew even less in Middle Earth after the ending of their kings, the waning was swifter in Gondor, and many of the chieftains of the Norse still lived twice the age of men, and far beyond the days of even the oldest among us. Aragorn indeed lived to be more than one hundred and ninety years old, longer than any of his lines since King Argaville. But in Aragorn Elsar, the dignity of the kingdoms of old was renewed. So this kind of brings up what you were saying, Nick, about how the the Numenorians sort of fell apart in their um greed and their power was uh, sort of led to their downfall, but the Dunadain and the Numenorians, that, that that lineage of Ilsidor, I think it was one of the three sons of Ilsidor, sort of went into the Numenorians, this sect, they sort of kept that regality. They kept that power and they and that part of that power was shown through how long they lived. Their lives were much longer because it says um it was the king's lives were were waned swifter in Gondor compared to the chieftains of the North who lived for much, much longer. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's
2: there's definitely like a clear sense that they are like a set apart and special people compared to even other men
1: in Middle Earth. Right. And they have this persistence about them. Like I was just reading in Left Field about the White Tree and Uh the... Shows up in one form or another for decades at a minimum, mm-hmm. if not longer, you know, like one, one tree dies. Will they somehow escape with a sapling and then plant it again somewhere else? And then by the time it ends up in Gondor, it's dead, but it's this yeah. symbol, you know, it just stays there until the king returns.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good point.
1: And what's
2: cool, too, is like with the whole reality thing, it's like there's still even though you get a clear sense that like Aragorn and specifically his people are destined for restoration and greatness. What comes across in the books and I think really well in the movies is still that sense of he has to choose that like it is destiny in a sense and it's unavoidable in a sense, but it's also like the path that he has to physically choose. And he's choosing on the one hand to reveal himself and to start walking down this, you know, path down non-obscurity and like people actually know who he is and he's going to do all these great things. But it's also the choice to deny the part of his blood that comes from door, who, who, who took the ring and like gave into temptation and like kind of further solely failed. Yeah, he failed. And that's what's so cool, I think, really cool in the movie at the end of Fellowship. It's like that. this is the proving ground. It's like what path ultimately is Aragorn going to be on? At the Council of Elrond, he made the choice, like, I'm going to forsake obscurity. Goodbye, Strider. I'm Aragorn. Let's let's do this thing. But then at the end of Fellowship, at least what comes through really well in the movie is when he has an opportunity to take the ring from Frodo. And he's like, nah, like, you, you hold on to this. I will defend you and that's him making the second choice of like denying the part of him that carries a seedore's blood um he resisted temptation oh my goodness i mean there again like it's jesus in the will i mean it's jesus well, i was going to say jesus in the
0: garden when he's praying you know if if this is my cup before he's crucified that's what i was thinking of like the choice that christ you know was sort of saying do i have to go through this kind of
2: and then what's so cool is that like the role that he plays the only part where he's not really the Messiah figure who would understand it is he doesn't really make the sacrifice. Like that's, that's kind of for Frodo and Sam to make in Mordor in destroying the ring, but he, you know, assists them. But that's, that's kind of an interesting spin on the Messiah archetype. Whereas he's not really like, he is certainly a Messiah type, but yet he doesn't, What's missing is maybe the most important piece to cement his status is that is like making that ultimate sacrifice, which he doesn't really
1: do. Right. It's like the closest thing you could really draw a parallel to would be his journey thereafter, which compared to a crucifixion is not. I mean, he goes through a lot of stuff, but it's not. He's not bearing the sins of everyone. Yeah. Like he's not abandoned by his fathers.
2: There's also just this is kind of a bit of a tangent, but. I feel like every time I am talking about Lord of the Rings, I have to mention this because it's it's one of my favorite scenes, in the books and in the movies, um, and it and it continues like this motif of Aragorn as Messiah at Helm's Deep, when they're just beaten bloody, and they're in the they're in the keep, and Aragorn is talking with Theoden, and trying to counsel him and like rally him essentially for a final push, and Theoden is totally despairing. And Théoden is representing very clearly, like the medieval idea that Tolkien is riffing on of like, it is glorious to just slaughter, and, like the thrill of battle is, is an end of itself and something to be desired. And Aragorn proposes to him, he's like, let's go, let's go have like this final ride out. And Théoden is like, for death and glory, like, that's the only possible purpose that I would perceive, you know, this desperate push, and like, maybe uh-huh. that'll be a cool way to die. And Aragorn's like, no, for Rohan, like for your people, like he offers a substitutionary sacrificial model for like why you would actually ride out and and give your life. And Theoden's like, oh, yeah, like that sounds that sounds great. Let's do this for my people. Totally shifts the paradigm that he's thinking about the battle. And then Gandalf comes and delivers that.
1: Exactly. And Aragorn's thinking long term here and looking back at the generations before and even just in that moment, like these people have died defending this keep and are you just going to give up, you know? And of course, obviously he's older than Théoden and that might have something to do with it, but I, I I get this sense that Théoden is not really connected to his legacy. If there is even a legacy besides being good at raising horses. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think those are all really
0: good points. And basically what this discussion has convinced me is that I should do like a Lord of the Rings read through podcast. That would be awesome. Because I'm pretty sure that this appendix that. in itself was about six pages. And we just talked about it for about 45 minutes. <laughs> Easily. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we could totally talk more about it.
1: Oh, yeah. And <laughs> we they can make a whole series of shows or maybe movies of course they would have to add stuff in there just on the appendix
0: all right well i feel like that was a very successful discussion about what was it what was it that you said dylan appendix 3a little tiny i3b or something like that uh yeah a1 part 3 that's it yeah and i think we covered a lot of really cool stuff about the third age about aragorn's lineage that i really had never heard about i didn't know much about um thanks for coming on the show guys yes thank you for having us thank you always fun especially any any kind of rings talk is a great time any kind of lord of the rings talk and i haven't done that much but i definitely like to have you guys on again if you have any ideas of what you'd want to do definitely let me know thanks for listening craig is no longer welcome